Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever and whenever you are in the world, welcome to the third edition of the Scottish Field Podcast. I'm Kenny Smith and I'm the web editor of the magazine and over the next half hour or so we're going to bring you a look at the contents of the May edition of the magazine which includes an exclusive interview with Outlander's Scottish star Sam Hewan who plays Jamie Fraser in the internationally acclaimed drama and later in the podcast you can hear a brief excerpt from that chat. We will also be joined by architect Michael Angus who is one of the judges on Scotland's Home of the Year, with a new series starting on BBC Scotland this week. Every month, Scottish Field brings you the best of all things Scottish. Heritage, interiors, antiques, gardens, wildlife, motoring, whisky and country news, as well as interviews with famous Scots names. Our May edition is now in shops, price £4.75, and you can also buy it online. I'll share those details with you before the end of today's podcast on how to order. And I'm now joined by one of my colleagues to look through this new issue. My name is Rosie Morton. I am the Chief Sub-Editor for Scottish Field Magazine. Rosie, what has caught your eye in the main issue of the magazine? Well, do you know what? There is so much to to have a read of this month. It's, It's packed full of editorial. And the one piece that I absolutely loved reading was actually Cal Flynn's piece that's on pony checking. And basically, she joined a lady called Iona Scobie on her biannual trek from coast to coast when she moves her Highland ponies to more favorable land. And it just is this amazing trek. There's some gorgeous shots of of this journey that they took from Inverness to Aleppo. And I just I really love hearing these sorts of stories because it's just the fact that you know, we go about our daily lives and there's all of these incredible things that are going on around us all the time. And most of the time we have no idea. But yeah, I, I just find it really interesting hearing about something, something that just happens all, uh, you know, twice a year. And I thought that was really cool to, to learn about that one. It's quite fascinating. That, as you say, these things are going on under our nose. And you think last month with the feature on the hounds down in the borders and how, they're, how they've been kept busy during these COVID pandemic times. It's fascinating that these things go on and you would never know about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because actually next week I'm going on this glamping experience and it's, it's something I've never I've never done before. But they have Highland ponies that essentially carry all of your kit for you. So it's it's like pony checking, but you then have to do all the walking yourself. But at least you don't have a really a really heavy bag to carry. But I've done my DV in Dalwini, so I feel like this should be a complete luxury for me. <laughs> Talking of walking around carrying heavy things with you, I believe that you've written something for this edition which features somebody doing that, not just a Shetland pony. <laughs> yes, I have, actually. And it was this chap. He's a really, really remarkable guy called Davy Ballantyne. And he lives up on Arran. He's originally from Glasgow. He's, he's got this proper Ouija spirit about him, which I absolutely adore. Yeah, he carried this 50 kilogram whiskey cask on his back right around the perimeter of Arran. And it was all in the name of charity, of course. He has done two other challenges for the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation. And the, the two that he'd done before, he dragged a 120 kilogram anvil up Goatfell, which is the highest mountain on Arran. And then the second one was he tied 60 kilograms of chains around his neck and proceeded to walk up Ben Nevis with him, which I just, he's an incredible guy. So then he set this other challenge, which is for the Samaritans with this whiskey cask uh, strapped to his back. We've got some great shots and he was just telling us about all of his experiences and the locals that he met along the way. Um, he took his friend with him, Fraser Aitchison, who took all of his pictures as, as he went and did this incredible feat. And yeah, as I say, the, the shots just look incredible. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been though for him. Yeah, fingers crossed that you don't have to worry about anything like that when you're away glamping. <laughs> I hope not. I sincerely hope not. 
yeah. maybe maybe some midgy bites along the way but we're, we're quite well accustomed to that in, in Scotland <laughs> why can't they get furlough and go away for a wee while the midgies and give us some peace and quiet for a bit if only exactly exactly I know and he was actually another thing Davey was saying was uh, that Cleggs were really bad um at the time of year that he was he was doing it uh, yeah he he said that he switches off pain in his head which does sound quite incredible but that he was just literally focusing on each and every step that he was taking and you know the fact that he couldn't sort of stop for to pause for breath and admire the view or listen to the birds cheeping about him he was just entirely focused on each and every step and yeah quite quite some character that's for sure so that'd be hopefully a nice one for our readers to read about it's quite incredible the things that are happening in scotland today and the people who we have and what they've been getting up to and all these amazing things that they've done but Scotland, of course, does have a rich heritage of people who've done incredible, fascinating things in the past. Mm. Yeah. And do you know what? I know that there's one piece in the June issue that's coming up that you're probably going to be absolutely, it's going to be right up your street, Kenny. The one about Lord Reith. Absolutely. I have been fascinated by Lord Reith since I was at Napier University also many, many moons ago. Um, <laughs> he was one of the characters we... We had to look at because of his involvement with the genesis of the BBC when it was initially the British Broadcasting Company before it became the British Broadcasting Corporation and the fact that he was Scots born, I think he was born in Montrose although his family were from Glasgow and he moved back down there and his father was involved in the church and then over the years he became involved with the, the then BBC when it was a company that was expected to be paid for with a tax basically when you bought a radio set that some of the money from that would go towards funding the BBC before things changed mm. and that was in 1923 when it began and then in 1927 the British Broadcasting Corporation came into being under a royal charter in the form or the basic form that we know it today and he became the first director general and his outlook on what he wanted the BBC to be pretty much set what it has become over the years to have an element of education as well as entertainment. And that's something that's struck through from you know, many shows over the years, even basic stuff like children's TV programming, the fact there's an education element in there. And as you know, I have a fondness for a certain television program. And, uh, <laughs> of course. And uh, even in its basic days, Doctor Who was there to educate about science and history. Maybe not everybody expected bug eye monsters going around exterminating everybody, but there were <laughs> elements of history in there when you learned about Marco Polo, the French Revolution, the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, even Culloden. And these are things that I learned as a child from reading about them, old Doctor Who stories. And it gave me a basic knowledge of these things that I can obviously later follow up. And you can find actually, here's the facts behind it all. And it's incredible, absolutely incredible. But the yeah. on Lord Reith is fantastic. We've got, and it's a very brief overview of him and his incredible life. And as a, the son of a Scottish Presbyterian minister, it was always going to be quite interesting, his, his views on on how things should be run with with quite a, a very precise way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. I think he was from Stonehaven, wasn't he? Oh, well, he was born in Stonehaven. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Stonehaven. Sorry, I think I may have said Montrose there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. And he, he's such an interesting character and his presence is just still very much felt in BBC today, as you say. And I think that what was his mission statement was inform, educate, entertain. And it's, yeah, there's so much stuff out there even now that you can sort of feel is, has been born of his uh, his statement. And it's just one of those stories that I, I love looking back onto. It's, it's all you need to do is glance at the history books and you'll find endless stories about trials and tribulations faced by those that, you know, are now household names 
and Reith, it seems, even though he was quite a doer, formidable figure and his political views were, were perhaps quite radical, you know, it sort of highlights that there's no straight A to B path for attaining this, this big goal that he had. And I just love hearing that sort of thing. Absolutely. And the fact that he's buried in uh, Rothy Murchis in Inverness Shire in the ancient ruined chapel up there. And he, he died at the age of 81. Mm. He's still remembered every year when there is the Lord Reith Lecture on BBC Radio. Mm. And a prominent person will come forward and speak and educate as well to maintain his original mission statement for the BBC. So yes, a fantastic read. And I was absolutely hooked. It's one that I shouldn't say it, but I wish it was a longer read, but that's only because I'm a geek for Lord Reith. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose so. Do you know, heritage pieces are, are fascinating. And, you know, we've had, we've had so many interesting ones, but this is, this, I particularly enjoyed this read, I have to say. Talking of television and such like, Rosie, I believe that you may have had a, a chat with an internationally known television star for this issue. I did. I had a chat with Sam Hewen, uh, the Outlander star. And yeah, do you know what? It was, it was just an absolute pleasure to have a chat with him. And I could have talked all day with him, the Prue man. He was very, very patient with, with all of my questions as I fired as many as humanly possible at him in 40 minutes. But yeah, it was just a massive privilege. And I think it's one of the best things about this job, I'm sure you'll, you'll agree, is that you get to talk with so many fascinating people with these incredible stories. And they, they come, you know, the fact that, that Sam has come from, you know, a similar background to, to the one that many of us will recognise in, in Scotland and yet has gone on to do so many incredible things that was things with his life is is, is amazing to read about. And so, yeah, I, I had a chat with him about his childhood and about his whiskey and Clan Lands book that he's just launched with Graham McTavish, as well as Men in Kilts, the TV show that that kind of was was born of that book. And yeah, I think what really hit home for me when I was chatting with him was just what an absolute gentleman he is. You know, what you see on the telly in his interviews and on his social media pages it it really is what he's he's like in real life and he's very very charismatic very down to earth and quite unassuming which I find really surprising and I sort of came away thinking can the man do no wrong <laughs> you know he's he's very very giving with his time as I say and yeah it was just a privilege to have a chat with him yeah we talked about clan lands we talked about whiskey we also talked bond rumors and you can hear all about it in next week's podcast now that's what I call a teaser. Yeah. <laughs> Rosie, thank you so much for your time today and joining us in the third Scottish Field podcast. My pleasure. Good to chat, Kenny. And just to whet your appetite for next week's podcast, here's a very brief clip from Rosie's chat with Sam. When you're out with, let's say, with the Outlander crew, what's a typical day for you? A typical day? I mean, th there isn't... Every day is different, but yeah, I guess... An average day is like probably if we're out on location, uh, we normally get up around like five. You get picked up at five-ish, maybe half four, and then go to go to work. I have my brilliant makeup artist Wendy, who features in the book a little bit, and, and we laugh a lot. She does my makeup for like an hour, hour and a half uh, costume. Then we'll go on set, you know, and you rehearse and, and you shoot as much as you can. So remember to listen to next week's episode when we'll have much more from Sam Hewan. Now, BBC Scotland's search for Scotland's Home of the Year is on once again, as the eagerly anticipated third series returns with the judges, interior designer Anna Campbell-Jones, blogger Kate Spears and architect Michael Angus searching for outstanding homes across the land. In their quest to find Scotland's Home of the Year 2021, Anna, Michael and Kate will travel the length and breadth of Scotland, judging the homes they visit on three key criteria. 
design, style and amazing architecture. The new 10-part series begins at 8pm tonight, Wednesday, April the 7th, and we spoke with Michael who, in his day job, is a senior teaching fellow in architecture at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow and, since 2019, has been one of the three judges on the show. He joined us to preview the new series and share his highlights previous years. Hello, my name is Michael Angus and I am one of the three judges on Scotland's Home of the Year show. And uh, my background is I was uh, an architect, I teach architecture, I've taught architecture for a long time in the Department of Architecture at University of Strathclyde. Um, it's been a joy of my life, quite frankly, um, to probably irritate and annoy students. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine how the world could be as opposed to the way the world is. And uh, I also write short stories for children and I self-photography and they're on my website, michaelangusauthor.com. How did I get involved in Scotland's Home of the Year? Um, I made a pact with the devil. No, what happened was I was was given a call actually completely out of the blue. There was another younger and presumably much better looking architect than me who was too good looking for the programme. He um, apparently turned down the offer. And But he suggested me and I had tutored him as a student. And uh, so I got a call and no disrespect to this lovely student, um, but when I got the call from the production company, they said, so-and-so has given me your name and I couldn't remember his name. So I was listening to this telephone conversation as this complete stranger was telling me about this bizarre idea. And all the time through the telephone call, I was thinking, who is that guy? Who is he? So it took me a wee while to figure out what they were asking. But anyway came completely out of the blue, involved then some other chats and got a five-stage interview. And, but then met Kate and Anna, and we had a, a wee trial day together, the three of us, and got on very well and had a right good laugh. And I seem to remember the three of us were all banging away at this old piano at some point. And, um, and it just went from there. Had you done much TV work before? No. No, no, I hadn't done any actually. I'd done a little bit, a, a little news broadcast for BBC uh, Scotland. But no, I hadn't done any, haven't done any TV work. I think though that tutoring, you know, I've taught for a long time and I suppose when you're teaching, I suppose you are to a certain extent aware that you're in front of an audience, you know, and you have to be able to communicate, you know, and as part of being an architect, you're supposed to be able to communicate. This is for you, people look at it and go, I don't understand. I know what he's saying. But anyway, so you're, you know, as part of what you're doing, you know, and you're, you're kind of using anything to sort of get across a point, you know, so it doesn't feel that unusual. You know, people have asked me, do you not find it really strange to be in front of the camera? And you go, um, no, I don't, I, I find it quite comfortable. I actually don't find it uncomfortable at all. And some people say, oh, what, I'd hate to be in front of the camera. Think, no, it's, it's fine. I like it. Like, How do you feel like going into other people's homes is that is I imagine there's an element of the the Lloyd Grossman and the who lives in a house like this kind of wow factor quite often and also is that we're sort of really we had a lot of conversations before we started filming the series you know about the way the things that we we didn't want to do and the things that we did want to do you know and and you know as foremost as people are offering up their homes you know and and you're very uh, you know, we say it, and we're not kidding, that we do feel, in a sense, very humble, you know, that people are just leaving their doors open for us to, to walk through their home and film it and talk about it. And that's quite that's quite a brave thing to do, you know, knowing that you have no editorial control over that whatsoever. <laughs> you start thinking, you know, you start thinking, if it was me, I'd be locking lots of rooms and cupboards and things. 
So I think, you know, it's, every home's got secrets, you know. Uh, so I, I feel, in a sense, I think, and we all three of us feel very respectful, you know, fundamentally about when we're when we're looking at these homes and conscious also that the first thing that always hits you is a sense of investment. We often see it just, you know, we always do the wee shot outside, you know, and you can often tell, you know, just as you're coming up to the home, right, that, that sense of investment has played out to the outside as much as it then really seems to sort of, when you go through the door, you know, as often as the case, whether it's a subtle explosion or just a um, kind of moment, you know. Um, but there's, there's never, a, very rarely is there a sense you walk in and you go, well, why are we here? You know, there's, a, there's always something kind of hits you that you kind of pick up on something, you know, that something's happening here, you know, and some much more than others, you know, there's some that stick in my mind as being absolute wow moments. Back to some of them, I suppose. But I don't know. I just think it, I just think it's a lovely thing to be asked to do. So our mood is always, as I say, we we hope that we're respectful fundamentally, but we're obviously looking to look for the delight that people have invested in their home. But obviously, my version of delight might differ from Anna's, which might differ from Kate's. For those that haven't seen it, could you explain the basic format of the show? Well, the basic format of the show is we are annually trying to find what we think is Scotland's best home. And it's not, um, it's not a home that was built that year. It really is just each year inviting Scotland to put their homes into the pot. And we look at these homes as three judges who each have different backgrounds. I'm an architect. My concerns are the fabric of the building, the built form of the building, the relationship of the spaces and so on. There's Anna, whose background is in interior design. So she's very much about that more that, that colouring and texturing and quality of that immediacy of the internal environment. And Kate is lifestyle. It's very concerned with how people live. And obviously through her own blogging and her own way of sort of the way she shares her life, it's very much a sort of, a, I think, a great barometer of how she might then talk and compare other homes to, to how she eventually she lived. Between the three of us, each episode we evaluate three houses in one particular area of Scotland and we uh, give them a score. Uh, score out of 10 and at the end of that episode one of them wins and sometimes it's pretty close and um at the end of uh we have nine episodes we have nine shortlisted finalists and then they go to the final and in the final the nine gets whittled down to three and then there's a lot of bloodshed and arguing and fighting and gnashing of teeth and you know frowning and really <laughs> and from that we uh, we find a winner what have been your highlights of the first two series Oh, do you know, I think there were, in the first two series, I think uh, there were a couple of homes that stood out just because they were just so amazing. And and, and in in some ways, it maybe wasn't too much of a surprise that they were the ones that ultimately were the winner because they just had that additionality to them. And in the first series, it was walking into the, um, it was walking into that White House and you sort of, you walked up the stairs you even entered the building and then you came through these two sort of big fairly austere white drums squeezed through this space and then this panorama of the Scottish lock which you sort of argue is like many Scottish locks a beautiful enemy but just by putting this wonderful window in front of it, it, it the three of us just kind of went you know so sometimes I think when a home shows you something that you could have seen anyway but it shows it to you in a different way and that was definitely one um, there was another one in the first series which was in this um Fairly innocuous sort of 1970s housing estate 
fairly similar facades of buildings that were brown textured brick, you know, nothing exuberant, fairly standard, normal. Walking along and then suddenly there was this explosion of colour. And I remember thinking it's like walking into a David Lynch movie. <laughs> it was like this, you know, <laughs> suddenly it was just you know, the house had been painted white, the bench had been painted sort of pink and blue, pink and blue, pink and blue. There's a wee pink bike under the tree. And it's kind of like, um, um, I'm in a movie at the new step past, you know. But that really just happened. You almost heard the blue velvet music, you know, and um, that sticks in my mind. And that one sticks in my mind because it was a sort of level of investment that was very um, making things out of nothing, you know, taking things that didn't seem to have value and just cleaning them and painting them and repositioning them and celebrating them. You kind of went, wow, you know, that's just, there's, that's just pure heart, you know. Oh, others, the one in the in the terrace that won last series and second series. I hope not a spoiler alert, I shouldn't have said that. People are looking back in the old series. But that was just like an Aladdin's cave, you know. I mean, that was just, you know, it's just this, you literally walk through the door and you were just overwhelmed with all this stuff. But it wasn't junk shop, you know, it was all thought about, considered, beautifully looked after, but there was just stuff everywhere. And of course, it was a very grand original property. It was a Charles, of Charles Wilson Park Circuits buildings, you know, Victorian. And, and to be given this kind of, you know, refreshment with, you know, the, the, the sort of decorating the way that those buildings may have been decorated, but in a new way, you know, and, and just with such exuberance, it was, I think that that's the one that moved Anna to tears, you know, it, it really was quite like, I am drawn to the what I think of as the the very um, the, the best an architect can do in contemporary terms, and there was one that was called the Ramp House, and the family I think it was their daughter needed to be in a wheelchair, and so they'd organised the whole house around the ramp, so that she could move up the ramp and get to every part of the house, but that the ramp wasn't seen as something off to the side that, you know, she had to go when she had to go out to room from room. The whole house revolved around this ramp and it was set into this really quite tight space, a muse space, I think, in Edinburgh. And, you know, they carved out space for the ramp and made this wonderful little garden behind it. It was just, that was a Zen house for me. I was, that was, that was, that was the one that got away from my point of view. <laughs> what can we look forward to in series three? I was, um, <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> I was thinking, uh, black is the new white. Series three, black is the new white. Watch out for the black. I think I was saying there's a quiet revolt going on in suburbia. Like the days of Magnolia are over. I think we're going, we're going, <laughs> yes, I know. I think people are being pretty bold, you know, pretty bold with their color choices, you know, but being prepared to be dark. And, you know, I don't know why I would like that, you know, but, um, it's, uh, it's pretty bold stuff, actually. Pretty impressed with that. Actually. People being prepared to, you know, take a paintbrush and just go, let's darken this down. And it's not just like by one notch, you know, this is like going all the way around to the other side of the dial, you know. And it's really brilliant, actually, because what I noticed was that when light comes into dark spaces, it becomes incredibly dramatic, you know. And, uh, and that's been quite something to see, actually. Uh, black carpets. No disrespect to series one and two, you know, they were absolutely wonderful what we saw. I feel in series three that, you know, we've gone up a gear again, you know, that somehow the quality of what we're seeing, is just incredible. The variety is, is bounding. The care and attention to detail is amazing. 
you know, and regardless of whether someone is building something new or, um, you know, is, is catering from an old building. And I think what always gets me is, is that degree of variety. No two homes the same, you know, and but the starting point for everyone is so different, you know, and, and the way people have gone about things, totally, totally different. And of course, the other thing is in Scotland, you know, so being Scotland, you know, every, every time you go 10 miles, the, place, the world changes in Scotland, doesn't it? You know, so there's that sense that every home is in this, in a sense, in this completely different place, yet it's still Scotland. That light that comes in, the aspect that they've got, you know, we're only seeing a moment in some of these homes. There's one in particular, I remember thinking, it sits down in, in a beach and it basically just looks west over the sea. And I thought, you know, the time to see this home is going to be at like 11 o'clock, on a summer's night, you know, when the sun does that thing that it does, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and the light goes down and the colours come up and I thought, and I had all these wonderful multicoloured sort of furnishings inside the house and I thought, these multicoloured furnishings, which at the moment like, might look a little bit garish, but when the sun sets, they're just going to be, they're going to make friends with each other, you know? So there's some, there's some, yeah, some real, real honeys, yeah, absolutely. And what I've enjoyed about the show is the fact that you can see the more episodes you do. It's like Top Gear, the bonding is there. And the fact you've got your yeah. own, we can see the, the things that you, you all like individually. And that, and that does come across. In fact, you've, you've got your, in fact, you can go into a, a house that's completely minimal or you can go the full Lawrence the Welling Bowen nightmare. And you can see <laughs> yes. everything between you. you. You've all got your, your appreciation of it. And it's, and it's lovely to see that come across. And it's, it's a thing, there's something you can think, hmm. You can tell that you don't like this as much as, as the others, and it's quite nice just to see that. And it's but doing it diplomatically in a non-offensive way. Yes, I think we're getting increasingly less diplomatic and more offensive as we go on with each other. <laughs> it is lovely, you know. It's lovely. I mean, I'm getting to know obviously Anna and Kate very well, and we do. I think we all love working with each other, and um, ethically, we don't agree. You know, I mean, you know, I patterns. You know, it's just patterns from here. It's not. <laughs> You know, and there was one house, one home, sorry, one home we went into and um, and I, I just knew as soon as we walked, as we walked in, I thought, oh, Anna is just going to absolutely love this, you know. So it's really nice, actually, sort of thing. I mean, for me, it's like I would, I would want to, you know, I would, you know, if I was invited here, I'd be making excuses. I need to get my hair washed and all that, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, Anna. Yeah, I need to go. What are we having for dinner? I hope it's just a boiled egg. And you know, and um, and Anna, you could just tell. I just knew she was going to love it. And it's really nice actually to see those moments. And also, there's moments where we all pick up on things that we didn't expect as well. And that's always interesting. You know, that there's you know things. You know, it's because there might be some odd thing in a home or something that we all just pick up on, or it sparks a wee memory in us or something. You know, and it just makes us react maybe in a way that we're going, "Oh, I didn't realise that." So we're we're finding out more about each other as as each series goes on, and it's it, it just enriches it actually, because I never know. It's not got dull in any way. Each series, it's like, "Oh, I didn't know about that," and so it's just really it's just, it gets increasingly interesting between the three of us. Absolutely. Has there been anyone that you've seen you particularly thought, I'd like to live there? Oh, you know, that is, uh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I, th I think it's always, as an architect, there's always the, the back of the mind that, you know, you would design your own home, you know, and it would be very particular to you. And, you know, when you're seeing these homes that are so particular to the people, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's not that many. There, were, there was one 
that was in the first series and it was the one uh, that was in Sky. It was one of the ones in Sky. And I remember that it was the one that had the, you know, it was very sort of, some people might have felt sort of slightly almost unfinished quality in the inside. But I remember being in that home and thinking, this is so comfortable. I mean, I, I loved this sort of, that lovely modern aesthetic, but it wasn't so modern that you couldn't move it. You know, there's a Miesian idea about architecture that you lay everything out and you do not move the chair and you, you know you, you sit in a particular way and you wear the slippers that were designed for that room and wear a different pair of slippers in the other room you know and it's like one of those you know you, you can't go into that room until you watch and you've been sterilized you know and um there's, you know, there's an architecture like that you know the human beings are only going to sully it you know and um <laughs> you know what I'm talking about and you know, a home has to be livable, and this was this was this had that. And I think we all talked about that actually. That, that we talked about that wonderful livability of that home, and it did something really so lovely. But just where it positioned itself, and you kind of walk right through the home to this wonderful view over this loch in, in, in sky. And that one, I think I could have yeah, I could have moved in that afternoon. I mean, I have things like I've got to put a drum kit somewhere, and you know, so there's other reasons that maybe I might move in, but others might move away. You know, so. But yeah, that one I remember thinking, yeah, that would be easy. Yeah. If you want to find out more about Michael's work, you can find his website at www.michaelangus-author.com and you can follow him on Twitter at michaelangusma and you can also catch Scotland's Home of the Year on the BBC iPlayer where you can watch previous series too. Remember, you can follow Scottish Field on our social media you can find us on Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash Scottish Field. We have a Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Scottish Field. Or you can see our Instagram page at www.instagram.com forward slash Scottish Field Mag. That's M-A-G at the end. And of course, you can pop by our website www.scottishfield.co.uk which contains unique content that you won't find in print magazine. And you can also follow a link on our homepage to subscribe to Scottish Field at www.scottishfield.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's all we've got time for today, but we'll be back with another edition of the Scottish Field podcast next week when we'll hear more from Rosie Morton about her exclusive interview with Sam Hewen and we'll share some of the chat with Jamie Fraser himself. Also popping by will be Roy Dennis, who has helped reintroduce many birds to our country, including the distinctive white-tailed sea eagle, which was driven to extinction in Britain more than 200 years ago. This immense predator is making a return to our skies thanks to Roy, who is an ornithologist, conservationist and arguably the driving force behind the UK's reintroduction agenda. He'll be telling us about his life and work ahead of the publication of his new book, Restoring the Wild, 60 years of rewilding our skies, woods and waterways. Until then, this has been the Scottish Field Podcast and we'll see you next week.